0: Mino Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. All right, welcome, black. Welcome, black. Welcome, black. Welcome, black. Black again. Black like I never left. Black as always. Black AF. Welcome to another wonderful episode of the Black Arm of the Law. I'm your host, the one and only Carl Anthony Payne II. That is my full government name for those of you who are trying to stalk me. Today's guest, like all other guests. Are super super special. Today's guest is super super special. Thank you, thank you for being patient, Doctor uh, Brackney. Is that how you say it?
1: Brackney. Yes.
0: Brackney. All right. Thank you for coming on today and being our guest. I appreciate you being here. Where where are you located right now? Where are you?
1: So I'm actually physically in Charlottesville, Virginia. So I'm still hmm. in Charlottesville.
0: Okay, and that's where you currently reside.
1: Yes, and as I saw your your eyes get big and the mm, after people say Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, tell us where Charlottesville is. Where is Charlottesville?
1: So you know, it's central Virginia, um, but as it's well known for, you know, the Unite the Right rally, little things like that. You know, people I mean, I mean, we, through we, crowds with with cars and
0: yeah, well, yeah, it, it,
1: Virginia. That's 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 kind of where I hang out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that, <laughs> that's where you do your your slumming, huh? Yeah. Well, no. I, listen, listen. They definitely made a name for itself. So, uh, you know, uh, you know. We, we, we should all know where that is now. Um, but you're not, but you're not originally from that area, right?
1: No, no, not at all. I'm originally from
0: Pittsburgh.
1: Um, I'm originally from home with the Steelers.
0: Steelers, Steelers. You guys have the weirdest accent in Pittsburgh. I don't, I, I can't quite make it out. Steelers, you know what I mean? looks like it's like a midwestern, but not quite. It's just, it's a it's a it's a weird accent, just, but uh. And I'm not gonna hold it against you. Is steel is Steelers your team? Is, is that your team?
1: Yeah, Steelers is my team, but you know, um, we're midwestern adjacent is how I'd like to say it. We're not quite there. Um, right, right. And you didn't pick up my accent right away, so I'm gonna at least let you slide on that one. Ooh,
0: ooh. <laughs> Let me slide. You know, what's crazy. Um, I used to be a Steelers fan back in the day. I used to be a a Steelers fan, especially when they had their uh, rivalries with the Cowboys back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: When they had it with the Crybabies, uh, the Cryboys. <laughs>
0: Roger Stallback too. Yeah, Roger. yeah. That's yep, crazy. yep. I'm not. I'm not mad at that. I'm, <laughs> I'm not, like I said, I was a Steelers fan back then. That's awesome. All right, so tell us a little bit about yourself and where you where you grew up. And uh, obviously, you grew up in 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 um, in Pittsburgh. You had a lot of brothers and sisters in the home, two two parent home. Or talk to me.
1: So I grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, I grew up in this neighborhood called Homewood. John Edgar Weidman's from Homewood. We're both from this very poor, predominantly black community. It's probably about 95% black. Um, it's 1.1 square miles of violent. When I say violent, half the homicides in the city of Pittsburgh often occur in this little small 1.1 mile square mile neighborhood. I have, I come from a large family. I've got uh, five siblings. I've got four sisters. So my brother and then five girls in a row. So just marry you for <laughs> um, a minute. Third, a middle child with all the craziness associated with middle child Mm,
0: syndrome. Awesome. All right. Thank you. And that'll be our interview for today. We will shut this down (laughs) early. Oh my God. (laughs) When's your birthday? When's your, when's your birthday?
1: So I'm a July baby. Uh, Oh my God. July baby. July 16th. Are you a cancer? Yes. July what? 16th.
0: My sister's a middle child and she's July 14th. Yeah. I was joking five seconds ago, but I might press the... (laughs) (laughs) Um, You you know what I realize about you, but you know what I realize about cancers? You know what I realize is that, you know, true to nature, or as they say, the Zodiac is the crab, right? Which is tough exterior, hard shell on the outside, you know, defensive, you know, real soft and mushy on the inside. Yeah, that tends to be us, right? Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah, that tends to be us. Sweet
0: people, Just, just don't get on the wrong side of them. Sweet people.
1: Um, as should most of the world, you know, like I sell What is it? the saying have holy, have hood. That means pray with me, but don't play with me.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. That's,
1: that's kind of, um,
0: I, I believe it. Uh, and your resume speaks volumes. <laughs> so I believe it. I believe it. All right, let's get into it. What, um, so were your parents big influences on, you know, um, the career path that you chose or was there a specific incident or, you know, something that sparked that, that made you want to choose this, uh, this career path?
1: So I'd have to say yes and no, right? So I came from a two parent home. Eventually my parents divorced when we were in high school. Um, and the reason I say yes or no and no is this. So Pittsburgh is very blue collar, it is very union oriented civil service type jobs oriented and when you grow up in you're poor and you grow up in black community and my joke is when i grew up poor poor you know, not powdered water or milk poor, powdered water poor, like we just will poor. Um, and one of six kids, your parents want you to have these jobs that have a secure future, like a pension or, mm-hmm. um, union coverage and things like that. My dad worked in the steel mills and, um, my mother eventually worked, uh, with the local transit authority as a bus driver. Um, as we, you know, as we were moving on up and they, they both were, had jobs at one point in time and career. So they, they pushed us hard towards that and we were all my sisters and my brother and I were all first gen my dad um who was white and uh, had a sixth grade education before he went to work in the mills and my mother Who's African American and Native American? Um, you know, not the all we got Indian in us stuff, but you know, so the twenty three and me version of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, I'm quit. So, you know, they understood that we needed to have jobs because education wasn't always an option for us. So, to be able to take care of ourselves. And right. my mother was always bringing home these applications for civil service jobs like the post office and the the police and fire and medics and some job in government um, so that I would have a pension. And I would I would literally fill out these applications to get my mother off my back, because if you know anything about a black mother, you don't live in their house. If you don't have a job or you're not in school, that's it. If you only fit in one of those two categories, you better find some way to do something real quick. And, you know, several of my sisters went to the military uh, because they weren't in the the job market and warning in um, college at the time, so I fell literally fell into policing and law enforcement and stayed in it in that career um, for thirty eight years.
0: Wow, wow, yeah so 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 it'd be safe to say, obviously, all those things uh product of the environment that you grew up in and and uh, your insular environment as well. And, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I grew up in the projects in Harlem, and you're right. When you can say poor, poor, like when you use the word twice, use the word like black folks, we do this all the time, but we know what we mean. <laughs> we know exactly. It don't make sense, but it makes sense to us because we know what we're talking about. Like you'd be like, is it cold outside? I mean, it's cold, but it ain't cold cold, cold, cold. Right. So I know what you mean when you say poor, poor. Like it means a lot. So growing up in, uh, growing up in, uh, in the projects in New York as well, the, the, the interesting thing was though that we didn't know we were poor. You know, because everyone else around us lived the same. You know what I mean? It was only until you ventured off and ventured out and did other things. And then you realize, oh, there's so much more out there. And and yes, I need to get the hell up out of here. And what does it take to do that? And that that also, you know, it it lights a fire and there's a drive and there's a thing inside of you that says, okay, we got to do this early, though.
1: And it's not always I mean, we, we sometimes think that it's intentional, but we find ourselves on pathways that we didn't realize we would we would find ourselves on. So you're Mm -hmm. right. And you're and you're right. Everybody else around us was poor. Right. So, you know, there was no shame back then with the food stamp game. Right. And I'm talking to old school, pull the books out with the 20s and the brown
0: and the green. I didn't even know money was all green. I thought all money was different colors. (laughs) Right.
1: So when you when you grow up in those kind of environments and you're just looking for economic stability. Right. You're looking to see what everybody else has. And how do you get that? Um so you find yourselves on these career paths that you may not have thought was your original choice. My original choice, you know, I'm one of six kids. I like to argue, you know, I, you know, I like to win the argument, um, and I'm going to ignore those eyes rolling back and forth. But I like to win as the a, argument. Pass a,
0: pass a minute.
1: That's right. I want to win that argument, right? And not only as a middle child. Not only do we want to win the argument, we want to just like "Eh," in your face that we won the argument, right? You know, you get to be very driven and resilient and Mm -hmm. creative and you find yourself in these places and spaces that you may not have thought were the spot that you thought you were going. I wanted to be an attorney, but you know what? I'm now in a place where I, I could, I could have more influence in the policing profession and the law pro- profession than I could have ever had as an attorney, um, mm-hmm. which they just churn out over and over and over again. Right. Um, and I think that that resilience, that drive, that determination, you'll find a way up out of there. And ultimately, we, every one of my sisters and brother, we've all just found our way out of there uh, through, Mm -hmm. you know, drive. When I say uh, drive, I mean my computer had persist relentlessly as my motivation when I open it up, persist relentlessly um, every Mm. single day.
0: And do you, did you find a passion for what it was that you were doing afterwards? You know what I mean? Like you said, sometimes we find ourselves in these positions where we, we thought we were going to be doing one thing and then we realize, oh, I'm actually good at this, or this might be my purpose, you know, like what you were you know, saying. Um, so did you develop a passion while doing it?
1: So simultaneously, I discovered my purpose, which was igniting my passion. So mm. when you find a thing that you love and those, those two are aligned, your passion and your purpose, um, the energy, the desire to stay in that field, um, you don't stay 38 years anymore someplace you don't, something you don't love doing or enjoying, right? This is a very transient, transactional community and and, and world we live in. Folks will drop a job, you know, they're not even returning the jobs from the pandemic. The great resignation, they're like double deucing you out. Keep it moving. Right. Um, right. You know, staying in there. Yeah. I, I found not only my purpose, I found that the passion I had around the issues that I really could influence then continued to fuel my purpose and right. redefine my purpose and then continues to ignite my passions. So they kept playing off each other. Throughout my entire career.
0: Speaking of that, we're going to jump forward. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the impact because you've, you know, as I, like I said, resume, you've done some great work and um, I know that you impacted the community in a major, major way around you, Um, you know, with reducing crime with, so, you know, just talk to me a little bit about some of those things and some of those programs and initiatives that you uh, implemented that resulted and what the results were.
1: So early on, you know, we have this this footprint right, right now, right? You'll hear 21st century policing, right? What does that look like? And that was, you know, President Obama's task force that he put together. And he put together these heavy hitters to, to look at policing after Ferguson, after Michael Brown was killed. Mm-hmm. And interesting, these thought leaders all came together. In reality, what they did, and, you know, no shade, we ain't going to the shade room here. In reality, what they did was codified what people were doing in the profession and in the field, and then brought it all together, right? They pulled it into one place and and one space for people to look at. Early on, as early as 1997, so I'm dating myself and really don't start rolling your eyes. But as early as 1997, I developed for the city of Pittsburgh, their cultural competency programs. What does that look like to engage and interact with people who are different than you are? And how do you talk to them and how do you engage with them? Um, you know, we have books now by Malcolm Gladwell about talking to strangers, right? Talking with strangers, like it, it is the number one bestseller. And we don't know what we don't know. And I was passionate about it early because when I said my father is, is white, we're talking Italian and German and my mother's African American and Native American and they got together before Virginia V loving in Pittsburgh and they were both Catholic. They couldn't get married in the Catholic church even though it was not written it was known they mm. could not get married. And you st- I started early saying, you know, when my paternal grandmother had nothing to do with our side of the family. My dad, she disowned them the first time one of my sisters was called the n-word was by one of my white first cousins, right? So early on, I understood that here's what happens when people don't know each other and don't like each other for no other reason than fear. So Mm -hmm. what happens when you also have the power of a gun or a baton or a blackjack and you're afraid of people you don't know because this isn't where you came from? So I developed that curriculum to expose the Pittsburgh police department to other aspects of the communities that we live in. And if you're like, you know, from New York, you may not have ever gone to one of the other boroughs. There are places and neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, 88 neighborhoods. They won't go to another neighborhood. They won't cross the river. Um, so they know nothing about those individuals or the way that they live. And right. often they associate it with particularly black folks and we're loud. I mean, we are loud. My sister's not weird. We are some loud folk. We all talk at the same time, which makes this podcast going to be hard for you. if, if, If you have a sister, but we're not. We're and you would think that we were fighting, but in reality we're all talking. We can all hear each other. We're all like much love, respect. Somebody's going to fight at a funeral or a wedding. And that doesn't mean we hate each other, but nobody needs to go to jail either. So just really understanding that is how I started developing that kind of curriculum and working around those issues of what does justice and social justice and equity look like in our
0: communities with police. I I was just going to um, say that, you know, every culture has that same, you know, that same thing, you know, Irish, uh, Italian, you know, every single culture uh, has the same loud talking and passion, you know, it's just been the system as well as, you know, other things have been set up From the beginning to where they don't recognize the passion in black people and they they mistake it or don't realize that it's not anger. It's not it's not, you know, out of control. It's passion.
1: That's right. It's passion.
0: It's the same passion that you might have. And it's just being expressed, in like you said, in a a louder vocal way sometimes or, you know. Right. But it's not it's not to be it's not to be, you know, to be threatened by. And just just on a whole, you know, we've we we were not violent people by nature especially if you're grounded in spiritual or religious beliefs which most of most black communities and you know uh, for generations have always been that so um, but it, it's the fear of what you don't know. Like you said, what you, you don't know, what you don't know.
1: You're absolutely correct. And then, you know, then I just continued on that same role and, mm-hmm. and did those things. You know, um, I started programs where they were individuals would say, oh, we want to see officers on the beat, right? We somehow romanticize and are very nostalgic about when a, a beat officer used to walk the, the beat and everybody said they knew him. No, they didn't, but that's okay. And he wasn't nice and he wasn't polite and at least not to the kids in my community, but he was consistent. So I said, how do I bring that together and really operationalize that? So I started a program called Walk with a Cop that said, I will have the same officer out there walking the beat at this time on this date on one condition. You got to be out there too. Let's all be out there together. Let's look at the neighborhood. Let's talk about what's going on here. And then we both look at what can happen in that community that we can come together to fix. And if we're all out there walking together, you can reduce harm. You can reduce order. You can reduce violence. I started another program in 2012. I had um, social workers in my police station. I found grant money. And so, what can we do so that officers don't have to try and deal with, you know, or become catch basins for every societal ill? It was extremely effective. An authentic diversion program. Um, I started again, and this had to be also somewhere around 2015, a diversion program where we didn't even arrest individuals. So, you know, often you hear diversion is once they're arrested, they're diverted somewhere else. That's Mm -hmm. not what we did. We literally would have that encounter with an individual, write up the paperwork, take the drugs, put them somewhere and not file charges on the community that you participate in whatever it is. And the whole household participated. So if we had a young brother out there, he's 13, 14 years old, He's slinging. He's you know pushing weight back and whatever he was doing. He's out there for a reason. When he was out there, it's because he was creating his own economies because we don't have access to mainstream economies. So why don't we treat the whole household? Why don't we see what we can do about getting that individual in class, making sure that they go to school, show us your report cards. You in school? You're not truant. That charge goes away. Mom, we gave parenting classes. We gave transportation. We gave drug and alcohol family support. Like we wrapped around this child so that they never entered the system. And then after the agreed upon time, literally the paperwork just disappeared. We would wow. submit to have the drugs destroyed and there's just a report. You don't have to introduce someone into a system doing that in um Um, 2015, we started programs to asset map. What does your, your community look like? We have assets in our community. Mm -hmm. We don't need, you know, somebody to come in and rescue us. We have the resources in our community to address the crimes. So I asset map. I surveyed the community and said, Hey, what's the problems that you have here? And without adding another officer to your, your area, what are the resources we have in that community that can address that problem? And then we just map them together. As a result of that, Crime went down. Fear went down. Homicides. I was in the communities that was the most violent um, communities. They then went 18 months without a homicide. That doesn't go where you go from the highest homicides in the community to 18 months without one because we wow. were investing in the community um, wow. itself, right? Treat itself, heal itself. Holistic approach, like you said um spiritual approach, wrapped completely around individuals and then, you know, did it everywhere I went. When I was at George Washington University as the chief there, Charlottesville, Virginia, um, attempted the same kind of approaches there with even much more transparency, thinking about um, justice and equity in our
0: communities.
1: And I could just go on and on with the, the number of programs that we started.
0: Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That's dope. That's <laughs> like really dope it's amazing man and 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 clearly the numbers don't lie like you said the numbers don't lie so you know crime was down and and there you know some great positive results came from that. And you should. So when are you running for office? I just want to want to know what the what the, what position you're going to hold, so I can vote now. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know what? It's interesting that I get that question more often than not. Um uh, My husband keeps trying to push me to run for some sort of office.
0: Listen, you just, I, I'm not saying listen. Can it, you right? listen. Dr.
1: Oz could do it for my 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 state. <laughs> tell, listen. Tell Herschel to
0: call me. Tell to call me. Oh, oh listen. He, if he knows how to use a phone. Oh, mm, mm, I said it. I said it. Mm-hmm. I said it. <laughs> so, all right. We talked about uh, your work in the community, the impact in the community. Talk to me a little bit about your journey um, coming up through the ranks. You dealt with racism at an early age, coming from a uh, mixed, if you will, family. In your own family structure, was your first experience with that? Um, you spoke a little bit about what that was like. Did it prepare you for some of the things that you had to deal with um, in your journey as you rose to the ranks? Talk to me a little bit about some of the racism that you had to deal with along the way. So
1: you would think that it would, but I, you know, like in most households, in some ways you normalize what's going on around you. If that's the prevalent, um, behavior, if that's the predominant behavior, you kind of normalize it. Um, I was not expecting from 1984 when I started in policing to 2021, when I finished, um, formally finished my career there, I I was not expecting and probably just didn't know the history as well as I should have, even though I had studied my profession and had studied often the areas, you know, that, um, we think we should be studying, right? Corruption and ethics and the evolution of force and First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment stuff. I, I was ill-prepared even through 2021, although I was, was finding myself in these places. I just didn't realize that as an institution, it was so embedded and the commitment of the institution to remain, um, status quo and to remain, um, a racist white supremacist institution. And I know that's difficult to hear and say, but you know, it is a profession that has, was grown, homegrown out of racism and um, terror theology. So I was not prepared. An example of it is there was a study out recently that said police departments that are 90% white or, or higher are more likely to be abusive to people of color higher arrest rates, higher uses of force, more charges, etc. In 2021, the city of Pittsburgh, nine out of every 10 officers was white. So they were one of the five in the nation that were 90% or more white. And they're a large policing entity. I was not ready for that. I remember the first time, and I don't know what you can bleep out, but I was in the middle of of a domestic in a poor kind of Italian Irish neighborhood and the domestic literally broke out into this melee and it was a fist fight. And as I was grabbing someone um, who was part of the fight, one of the, the combatants called me a white person and I literally stopped fighting. I'm
0: sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm
1: sorry,
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I,
1: I, go ahead. So I, I stopped fighting. Um, I mean, I had heard every name up until that point I had been called highs 57. We're from Pittsburgh, right? A, you mutt, you have free, you know, um, you name it, I have been called it, but that was the first time. Like enough for you to stop fighting. Um and I just turned to look at him, just stunned that it just rolled off his tongue that quickly, right? Um you and I are we briefly talked about my rest. I
0: uh, can I you got we gotta pause for <laughs> a second.
1: <laughs> Edit that out.
0: No, I just want to get this laugh out of my chest, please. Good Lord. Because, I mean, I think Chris Rock and a couple other people have pointed out to us that big doesn't have a color. So there's some white things out there, too, apparently. And apparently you want to. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> oh, goodness. When, when you talk Lord. about, you know, institutions of racism, I understand that the comfort level Um back then and this was like ninety or this is like two thousand, then And what it is now, right? When I've been called, you know, polite names is affirmative action, quota hire, turn desk jockey. And you looked at my resume, like I've been affirmative action hire. Um, You know, I was not used to the level of vitriol um, that would be, particularly in Charlottesville, that would literally be put in my face um, as the only black female in the police department in Charlottesville, and you know. Were, they were comfortable um, reminding me, as I, as I like to say, that they vote Republican and um, and everything that that means, right? That they support Donald Trump and everything that that meant. Um, and that's when, it, that, you know, that's when you realize they're so comfortable. You know, the death threats that I received from my own officers from the community were, were you know, gendered as well as racial. So, um it is an institution that is very clear on its racism and, and very comfortable. And as a matter of fact, as I say, adapts faster than any variant of the COVID virus. And it's not interested in any inoculations for black and brown folks. Um, racism within policing is just, mm. it, it is, it is swift adapting and resilient.
0: So uh, man, there's so much to unpack here. And I really just I have so many questions, so little time. I got to have a part two with you for sure. Um, what do you think the answer is? What do you think that looks like? What's the answer? How do we fix it? Or how do we begin to fix it? Because I think you were on to something with some of the things that you've been doing and have done. Um, but how do we, you know, how do we become that that cancerous in a good way? Right. How do we infect the system with this thing to make change.
1: So the first thing I would say um, of how do we change a system and what does that look like is understanding the system as it currently operates, right? So we have to drop all pretense. This is not a system that has one bad apple. This is not a system that has a couple bad leaves or a bad branch or a bad tree. This is a system that has bad soil and everything that grows out of this soil is going to continue to infect the, the entire institution that is policing. So, um, I'm all for just tear it down. I think of it just like engineering, um, if you, you know, you're in LA, I'm out here in Charlottesville, but construction is all over the place, particularly roadside highway construction. And we can still ride on the right-hand side of the road while they're tearing up the left-hand side of the road. And when they're tearing up the left-hand side of the road, is because it is corrupt. It is bankrupt. It cannot do its job. It is no longer healthy. It is not, you know, performing in a way that society will want. Um, we need to completely dismantle the current systems and structures. And we need to think about policing as a component of public safety and public wellness and public well-being in which the community owns what policing looks like, um, and not the police. And currently, it's the opposite way: uh, we determine what policing looks like, and unions and the mayors and the city managers, all who sign these contracts, they are the same ones who um, then allow police to police the communities under those conditions. So one, we need to get out of the current contract systems that we have. I'm all for abolishing qualified immunity. And um, abolishing qualified immunity is not just for officers. It's actually for government officials. And that's why your mayors and your senators and and representatives don't want that abolished because you'd have to abolish it for them as well. Um, I think we need to look, what does justice look like and how do we infuse it for the first time into the criminal legal system? And if we use that as the, um you know, the linchpin, no pun intended, um, if we use that, I think we can get a system that actually serves the community for the first time versus being terrorized by the same individuals who are designated and sworn to serve it.
0: I'm Carl Payne and I approve this message.
1: <laughs> I'm so grateful. <laughs>
0: No, no, this is great. This is really good, good stuff. Um, so, jumping back really quick, before we move forward. So, clearly, you've dealt with this on many levels, and at the highest level, um, including when you were police chief. And you know, um, talk to me a little bit about when you, uh, when you know, when you got fired.
1: Ooh, the way you say that too is thank God we have a lawsuit. Right? I mean, <laughs> you got fired when they got rid of you.
0: I mean, didn't it, it felt like that though? Right? Did it feel like that? It's one of those things that, that, um, you know, and forgive me, I'm not, I'm not trying to push the, the, uh, the dagger in any further and twist at all. You know, I know it stings even still. You know, and especially, you know, I'm the type of person as well, like, you know, I, I can't imagine. So that's the point I'm making. I, I can only imagine and I can't imagine what that felt like, what it feels like still. When you're out there fighting for justice for everyone and you're doing the job that you've been hired to do and you, and you, and you think you're on the right side of things. And it's such a mind blowing awakening when you realize, as you've stated so eloquently, what it's really about.
1: Yeah, you're right. Um It is a painful reminder, even, you know, when you hear it out loud sometimes, like you almost when you read it, it's very different than when you hear it, right? And what's so interesting about all of it is that the impetus for this is doing exactly the things that I have been hired to do after the Unite the Right rally. Um And I have been brought in because of the issues that were going on in the community. And, you know, I had terminated officers. I had officers arrested for excessive force. Again, I'm the only black female in this entire agency. And so as the only black female in this entire agency, as I'm disciplining and correcting white men, that doesn't sit well down South. Um, Particularly as a black woman who is multi-ethnic, identifies as black, clear about black, got my black girl fly earrings on, right? Like I'm rolling in there black. There is no mistake about who I am and what I believe in in this community. And I'm the one who... As I'm terminating officers for excessive force, for circulating nude videos of themselves and of women um, that they had just had sex with on the city issued cell phones of excessive force that they were doing, texting they wanted to kill me um, and let God sort it out, texting they wanted to kill other officers for being snitches. Um, I'm walking out of the station with my gun in my hand every night, installing alarm systems at my house, putting pictures up of officers around my house so my husband would never open the door, fearful of cops um, and just what they would do and I'm doing all the things to dismantle this system. I'm being transparent about it. I'm putting everything on our website. I'm being upfront. I'm doing all the work and assume I have the support of the city manager and the city council. Um, only to find out that behind my back, they were just trying to find out ways to get rid of me. Um and so they did terminated my contract without cause after I disbanded the SWAT team, disbanded the drug enforcement teams, took the school resource officers out of the schools, all the things. That we have said we want, um, so that our children can thrive in an educational environment so they can thrive, um, in their communities. And I get called in and basically said, Oh yeah, you're good at this racial reconciliation, procedural restorative justice. Yep. You do that well. Trust, legitimacy in a community. Yeah, you do that well too. Reforming a police department. Yeah, you're, that's all going so well but we need to go in a new direction. We need to go in a different direction. And to to find out that the police department and the city manager's office and several members of a council were so invested in that supremacy that they would rather get rid of me than to dismantle that system. And that was, it was painful. So, you know, I underestimated the commitment to the institution of supremacy, but that will not ever Happened to the sister again. Now there are some good things about all of it. Um, the good things about all of it are: are this, the community has heard the story. And there should be accountability. But there's another thing I say: don't ever come for a sister unless she calls for you. Because I got every receipt. I've been recording people since the day I walked through the door. Like I'm like I got everybody on audio. So whatever you're saying, you did. Sister was recording them.
0: <laughs> Mommy ain't raised no fools. Yeah, but but you gotta protect your neck and carry a big sword. Protect your neck. You know, I mean, I could tell. I could see it. I could see it in your face when I asked a question. I could see this. I could see it stings and still stings. I could see that.
1: You know, and here's the thing. The thing I'm learning, and this is controversial. uh, My husband's a professor. Uh, His specialty is AFAM studies, emphasis on lynching slave narratives. I mean, we just have a jolly household, right? There's nothing but happiness up in this place. Um, But there's a book, Derek, (laughs) Derek Bell's Faces at the Bottom of the Well. And what his premise is, we need to just acknowledge supremacy is going to be with us. We're never going to find ourselves out of this space. And once we know that, we then know how to fight it. It's always when we can convince ourselves that somebody is, is our ally or there, there's an alliance or that we're vision and value aligned that we find ourselves cop you know you know with unsure feet you know on, on on when we're being pushed back so uh you're exactly right and the sad part is in policing um you know they claim they have a thin blue line um and they don't see anything but blue but as i tell them all the time that thin blue line only exists if you're a certain shade or hue of blue and i'm not that shade um
0: at all I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Um, one, I have to take a minute to um, commend you. I have to take a minute to celebrate you. I have to take a second to lift you up, to applaud you to um, put you up on a pedestal and say, thank you. Thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for the fight that you, the fire still inside of you, that drive that never left to continue fighting the good fight. Thank you for being you, for being the person that is you, for not backing down, for not letting, you know, someone else's, how you say, not letting dim your light. Thank you for the work that you've done in the community. Thank you for all the programs that you've started. Thank you for the seeds that you've planted. In this unfertile soil and the water that you've given it to create new life in all aspects, new branches. Thank you, thank you. Don't stop, won't stop. In the words of Diddy,
1: Diddy <laughs>
0: can't stop, won't stop. Don't stop. <laughs> in the words of the great poet, <laughs> Sir Sir Diddy can't stop, won't stop. Um, right. Wow. Okay, we got to have a part two with you. We we are we are running out of time. Close to running out of time. There's so much more I want to get into, but uh, before we go, let's let's just get into a couple of quick ones. Sure. Tell me, uh, tell everybody, actually, uh, what you're doing now. Really quickly, what, what should we look for? How do we find you? What should we keep an eye out for? Talk
1: to me. All right. So what am I doing right now? Um, I have an appointment as a distinguished visiting professor at George Mason University. Um, mm-hmm. I have a appointment as a fellow at Carnegie Mellon University, where I teach a course called The Shading of Democracy, The Influence of Race on Policy and Politics. I am writing a book that's called, uh, The Bruising of America, When Black, White, and Blue Collide. Um, I'm currently writing that. So, Anybody helps with these book proposals, publishers, hook a sister up. And then, you know, I'm just loving on my, my husband and our daughter. Um, we have a daughter's 29 years old, trying to get her off the family payroll. If anybody got any tips on that, I'm even better. And then, you know, just look for me to be present. Um, easy enough to find, easy enough to find. Um and then I'm just excited about wherever our you know God is leading me next.
0: Amen to that. Amen to that. What was your favorite uh cop show growing up?
1: <laughs> Barney Miller. Um it was probably the most realistic.
0: <laughs> Never would have thought you would have said Barney Miller. Never hey,
1: and there was a one called, uh, rookies. Um, I was fascinated with that. Um, and I was studying it so that I thought I would fail out of the academy based on what was happening there. Um, and I was using that as a template to, to, to possibly not stay in policing if I could.
0: Yeah. You like to be prepared. I can tell. <laughs> okay. So if this happens, this is what I'm going to do. Let me watch this episode. So I know what to say. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you could, and I, and I say this, you know, I say this lightheartedly as well as I mean it. If you could go back in your past and arrest somebody <laughs> from your past, who would it be? Who would it be and why?
1: I could go back and arrest somebody from my past. Who would it be and why? Um. How about I not name names? Um,
0: <laughs> right. We don't have to name names. We do, though. don't have to name names.
1: I'm not trying to get sued, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, um, I had a supervisor. Uh, I had a supervisor um, that, I mean, just vile, um, just vile. And eventually found out, I mean, I was being, again, this is very different. I was being sexually harassed. Um, when I say vile things that I, some of it, you know, or will be in the book is, I'm sure, somewhat cathartic. Um, was, was your
0: supervisor's seen, name? Was your supervisor's last name Weinstein? <laughs> uh,
1: no, because the sister wasn't going down like that. I'm sorry. I mean, oh. I, 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 there would not be fighting. <laughs> going on there, right? But anyway, um, but you know, sexually <laughs> harassed. I was receiving notes about, you know, from my own police department that if they caught me in the back alley of the police station. Gang rapes, um, people coming past my house. I've seen phone calls all hours of the night. Um, and to find out eventually it was one of my supervisors. Um, wow. and he had me transferred. Um, I was kicked out of the station and was told I was a problem. You know, um, right. needs to be under the jail. I was 21 years old when this stuff was occurring to me. And, you know, there was no avenues for sexual harassment. And I can appreciate the Me Too movement. I think I'm just blessed enough that I came from one of six kids, five sisters, you know, in the hood. It just was not going down like that. And I carried the gun too. Oh, hell no.
0: Nah. Right, right. Well, <laughs> let's give it up for Dr. Brackney, a.k.a. Nuck if you buck.
1: <laughs> Glock in the Louie, right? I got a Glock in the Louie at all times.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, give it up. Give it Thank up. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well. Listen, no, thank you for joining us today. This was awesome. Um, Again, we got to do it again because I got more. I got it it from me more i need more um, but you've been definitely uh, a pleasure to have on our show today and as i said thank you thank you for your service thank you for the continuing to fight the good fight and again you just let me know when you're running for office and i'm gonna I'm be in charge of getting all the you know all those other votes that you need together
1: so good thank you so much for having me
0: thank you thank you for being here here endeth another episode of the black armor the Law. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a Mean Old Lion Media production.